Well, as you've been seeing and hearing in the news reports, mass destruction caused by Hurricane Dorian in the Bahamas. Volunteers with search dogs right now are scouring neighborhoods. Relief agencies are rushing to get to those hardest hit areas. 70,000 people have now been left homeless on two of the northern islands in the Bahamas. The death toll now sits at more than 40, and that number is expected to rise. So what is going to be happening now with that storm headed towards Atlantic Canada. Let's check in with Anthony Farnell, a global news meteorologist, and he is in Halifax. And Anthony, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Oh, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, that hurricane that has already affected so many people is uh, affecting its first Canadian residents as this system is now racing uh, towards not just Halifax, but uh, the entire, well, Maritimes and all of Atlantic Canada. It's such a massive storm that's uh, on its way here now. And so what are you expecting as far as the power of that storm when it arrives? Well, it's a Category 1 hurricane, so nothing near the Category 5 strength it was when it decimated the the northern Bahamas. So that is some good news. The bad news is that it is going to make a direct landfall either here in Halifax or just to the east. They're expecting a storm surge up to a meter. Uh, We're seeing some of these outer bands now that uh, are bringing some big wind gusts and have already uh, started to cause power outages around, and that is uh, one of the big concerns. It was a problem with her. Oh, I don't know. Anthony, can you hear me? We'll try and get Anthony back on the line. Gotta love the technology. I, uh, for one, am a big fan of the phone and just get the one scratchy phone line going. But we will try and get Anthony uh, back on the line. He is in Halifax and he is... Hello? Oh, there you are. Sorry, the the phone line there just cut right out. (laughs) Excellent. So sorry, you were just saying it's expected. uh, (laughs) So the good news is it's gone down to a category one. But it is expected to hit. When is it expected to hit land in the in Atlantic Canada? Well, if you if you've looked at a satellite uh, this morning, it looks nothing like a hurricane anymore, and that's what uh, has for, have forecasters uh, a bit perplexed. Because as these systems go from tropical to what we call extra tropical, they change the whole dynamics, the structure of it changes. The winds get removed from the center. But as far as the worst conditions go, we are expecting that around dinner time tonight. High tide here in Halifax Harbor is just after three o'clock, so we're expecting the water to go up and then basically stay up right through the night tonight and then with those big waves on top and it's been uh, incredible yesterday watching the cruise ships go back out to sea Uh, there were a dozen navy vessels here for for training they're all back out in the ocean as well because they would rather deal with the 15 meter waves there than uh, be bumping around here uh, in the harbor that's already getting very choppy yeah that makes sense for sure so is there a concern with the high tide being around the same time that it's expected to hit Uh, is there a concern of flooding uh, there is a concern of, uh, of, of saltwater, yeah, of ocean flooding. Uh, there's also freshwater flooding, 100 to 150 millimeters of rain expected just uh, on the other side, the west side of the track. So that's going to cause some big problems as well. As far as residents go, there are no mandatory evacuations just yet. There are uh, strongly encouraged voluntary evacuations at places like uh, Peggy's Cove, the uh, iconic lighthouse there. But there are also some residents are being asked to leave. Same thing on the eastern uh, passage area, just on the 
the other side of Halifax, they're being asked uh, to leave and get to higher ground and shelters have also been set up. So businesses here are closed. Uh, all the shops are, are not boarding up, but they're definitely telling all their employees to go home and, and be with their families uh, to ride out this storm and, and hopefully uh, get power back quickly. But uh, just the way it works out here, they're expecting uh, some residents to be without power for days. Exactly. And I guess that's one of the, the issues being that you might not be told you have to get out, but if you're staying and this happens, uh, you need to have supplies and have enough to, to ride it out until the power can be reconnected. Yeah, you really do, and it's it's more it's it's funny here. Well, not funny, but it's the the locals that have been riding up these storms for for decades. Those that have always been here, they have nor'easters that have similar wind speeds in the winter. But the fact that it's early September, the fact that it's a hurricane uh, with these gusts, uh, all the foliage on the trees is going to knock out uh, more power. So the the locals are, are maybe slightly less concerned than those that are hunkering down off the tour boat and those that are visiting from out of town that have maybe never been in a hurricane before. Those are the people that that have been coming up to me here on the boardwalk and asking what do I do where should I go so there's definitely a a growing concern as this is such a big storm and it's already caused so much devastation uh, up the east coast and of course in the Bahamas and Anthony just one more question and you may have touched on this but how much rain or do you know how much rain is expected to hit when this storm hits as well yeah, so it's thankfully a very fast mover. It's going to be in and out of here by early Sunday morning. But even in that short window, uh, there are some uh, radar estimates and, and computer models that are predicting upwards of 150 millimeters of rain. Now, there was a, a system last week that uh, used to be called Tropical Storm Aaron. It weakened over the province of Nova Scotia, but it dropped 150 millimeters of rain as well. So the ground is saturated just to the west, and uh, that, that is a big concern that uh, roads are going to get washed out along with of course all the debris from from the winds and and storm surge as well all right well thank you so much for bringing us up to date and uh, make sure you stay safe and keep people informed as you've been doing and thanks again so much i know it's a busy morning for you all right well thanks so much for having me on well, if someone was to ask you, what is your number one concern when it comes to health care in this province or even this country, what would your answer be? Some new research done by Research Co. shows that wait times are at the top of the list, but there are also some other interesting findings in this. And Research Co. President Mario Canseco joins me on the line to talk a bit more about the findings. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Great to be here. Uh, thanks for being here. No huge concern, surprise there, I think, that anybody who has been in the system, whether it's uh, for a hip or a knee or something that's not life-threatening and is been, has been on a wait list, uh, would likely say that's the number one concern when it comes to health care. And is that what you found as far as at the top of the list? It is. It's the number one concern. There's 38% of BC residents who identify long waiting times as the biggest problem in the healthcare system. Uh, the number two issue is a shortage of doctors and nurses at 20%, which is more of a big issue in the rural areas. And then it's uh, inadequate resources and facilities at 15%. So it's an interesting scenario because if you go back five, maybe 10 years ago, uh, it was more about not having the resources and the facilities and the long waiting times were still an issue, but not as high as they are now. So there's definitely a little bit of a shift going on when it comes to the way we look at the healthcare system. And when we talk about the wait times, did you break it down or did you know what specifically people were waiting for? Well, more than anything, it really has to do with specific things uh, 
that are required uh, to deal with your health care. It's not related to the emergency room, which is something that we get a lot. You know, I waited four hours, five hours, six hours. This is more related to specific uh, procedures that you require or to see a specialist. And it's definitely something that is affecting some areas more than others. We see it at 48% in Northern BC, which is staggering, but it's, it's only at 24% in the island. So there are some regions where things are working in a much better way, at least in the way that the residents are saying it. Uh, interesting you mentioned the difference there between the two, because I think we're almost, uh, we expect that if you go to an emergency room, depending on what you're there for, you're going to be there for a few hours at least. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, or it means the system is broken. It just means there are a lot of people and, and there it's it's emergencies. It's not like you can plan and know what, what you're going to be dealing with. But diagnostic tests, and like you mentioned, specialists and things uh, that people, information that people need, uh, it is an issue. It's, it's hugely stressful and can be very worrisome if you're told, well, you need this test, but it's going to be a couple of years before you can get it. Well, this is definitely one of the reasons um, for the numbers when it comes to the rating of the system as a whole to be where they are. You know, we see only 26% of BC residents who say that only minor changes are required. And there's 12% who say that there's so much wrong with healthcare that it needs to be completely rebuilt. And this is something that happens because of your experience with the system. You waited a long time to see a someone who, who, who you had to see. And it's um, one of the reasons that it's making people reassess the things. Now, we're nowhere near the level of animosity that the Americans feel about their own healthcare system. Um, but it's definitely something that we want to be tracking because, you know, it's ultimately a scenario where if you experience it, you're more likely to feel about it differently than if you hear about a friend or a neighbor who had to wait a long time for a service. Oh, definitely, for sure. And also different, too, when you hear people, the different responses or, or um, experiences people have that say you, you wreck your knee and you need surgery. If you do it at work, you're going to get it fixed and it's going to be done very speedy because you're going to go through WorkSafe BC, whereas if you do it on your back porch, you could be waiting months, if not more than a year, to get that knee fixed. Absolutely. This is one of the things that is happening. And, and you know, on the feedback form, we, we did hear from from many residents who were deeply dissatisfied with the way they were treated. Others who were definitely happy with the way that the situation unfolded. And I think it goes back to specific areas that are dealing better with some things that have better access to specific issues. Um, it's not happening in the same way. And I think this was one of the biggest uh, shocks of the findings for me. I thought it was going to be more uniform, but you do see specific areas that are suffering because of some issues and the complaints about the healthcare system are different from region to region. You also asked people if they would be willing to pay out of their own pocket to have quicker access. And I thought the response to that was quite high. Well, generationally, that was the thing that really blew my mind. Uh, It's the residents over the age of 55 who say they are not willing to pay out of their own pocket to have quicker access to medical services either here or if they have to travel to another country. It's something that is more attractive to millennials. 46% say they would pay out of their own pocket to sort of jump the queue if they could. 47% would travel to another country. So what's interesting here is you see a level of of, uh, detachment with the system with millennials that is definitely higher than what we see with Generation X or those over the age of 55. Obviously, household income plays a role. If you're in the highest income bracket, you're more likely to say, yes, I I will pay if I have the chance. 
uh, but it's not something that is happening to everybody. I also found it uh, interesting, the focus when you asked people about preventative care. It was a very small number uh, that said there, that there, there was little focus on that, which I find that there's very little focus on preventative care. Well, this is an issue that I have been tracking for a while, and this used to be closer to 10%. So there's a little bit of a change there. And I think it has a lot to do with whether you have your own doctor. If you have your own GP, it's a little bit easier to talk about specific things and to essentially continue that relationship over time. Um, We do see that the shortage of doctors and nurses is at 20%, and it climbs a little bit higher in southern BC at 27%. So it's, it's ultimately, if you establish that relationship with your doctor, you will have that focus that you require. Uh, but there are many residents who haven't been able to do that. And you're right. I think if you've, if you've gone through it firsthand, it is much different, or you have a much different perspective than even hearing anecdotally. I have a good friend who just recently, she's still recovering after having a pretty major surgery, but it was postponed. She was told at first it was going to take at least a year, maybe a year and a half. At one point, she was in the gown ready to go in for surgery. It was canceled at the last minute. She did finally get it. But she even talked about it, the fact that the, the reason she was able to get it a couple of days later was the clerk, the scheduling clerk, did some magic to make it happen. And had the scheduling clerk not done that, surgery wouldn't have happened. And I think that story probably is not unique. No, and we see it in in two areas particularly. Northern BC, 48% of residents say it's long waiting times. Even though it's a smaller community when it comes to how many people are there, you continue to have those difficulties because there's doctors who will only be there once, uh, once a week, twice a week. It's very hard to get to see somebody um, who, who you need to see or to get specific things done. Um, but it's at 41% in Metro Vancouver, which is also quite shocking. It's a little bit higher than the BC average, and it's definitely showing that even though we have more doctors, allegedly, and, and essentially more access to services, we're still waiting a long time for some of these things to happen. And different as well when you look at even Metro Vancouver and the Fraser Valley. Yeah, Fraser Valley was quite interesting. They have the lowest uh, number of residents who are complaining about long waiting times at 31%, but they have the highest when it comes to inadequate resources and facilities at 23%. So they're, they're more likely to look at their hospitals, look at their facilities and say, we need to get something done here. Um, certainly at a higher level than what we see anywhere else in the province. And I guess one of the takeaways from this, too, is what I'm seeing from a lot of these numbers is the concerns. It's not concerns about staff or staffing numbers or the professionalism, what what services you get. It's getting to access the doctors, the nurses, the specialists getting getting to access and that once you do, then people are pretty satisfied. This is definitely one of the things that sets us apart. Uh, other countries that have similar healthcare services, particularly European countries, the level of animosity towards the bureaucracy and the poor management tends to be higher. We're at 10% here in BC. There are countries in Europe that are at 20 25%. Lots of complaints about the fact that you don't have any legal rights also. Those are numbers that are definitely low when it comes to Canada. So it's more about finding more doctors dealing with that shortage and trying to reduce those long waiting times. But we're definitely not in the same situation as other countries where it's more about managing your way through the system that really gets into people. Uh, Anything else stick out for you as far as a number that you weren't expecting? Well, one of the things that is interesting is you you do see more than uh, half of BC residents saying there are some good things in the healthcare system and some changes are required. And I think it has a lot to do 
with the way in which we look at healthcare in the United States. Uh, you know, we may be waiting a long time for things, but you try to compare some of your own situations with what happens in the United States. Somebody without insurance is out of, you know, thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of dollars after something like this happens. So we're definitely proud of the healthcare system, and we want to see things done a little bit differently. Uh, but thankfully, it's in areas that we can deal with just by trying to be more expeditious in the way we do things. Now, although I do find it interesting that people always compare our system to the United States, because even when we talk about reforming the system in BC, and if that discussion is about some form of privatization, I don't think anyone is suggesting that we want a US system. But when we look at other systems in Europe that have a, a combination of universal and some private, a universal and some private, even private hospitals, uh, there are systems that are much more efficient. Uh, I do find it weird that we compare to the states rather than compare to similar systems that have universal health care. Absolutely. We're never talking about Denmark or Sweden when it comes to this discussion. There's always the notion of looking into the state. But with the federal election coming up, we're bound to have discussions about this. We're bound to have uh, the liberals talking about the, the conservatives trying to implement two-tier health care, conservatives saying that it's not true. And sadly, we get into the same debate that we always have when it comes to federal elections, which is federal politicians saying we're just responsible for the funding. If you don't like your services, complain to your provincial governments. All right. Well, interesting uh, numbers and findings for sure. Mario, thank you so much. We'll talk to you again soon. Definitely, Jill. Thank you. I absolutely love this topic because I think there are so many people out there that give their pets a lot of credit or other animals in thinking they can think, you can reason with them. When you talk to them, they know exactly what you're saying. Of course, they understand whatever language it is that you're speaking. But the key question here, can animals actually think? And if so, how do we know what they are thinking? Well, let's bring in Jacob Beck, Associate Professor at the Department of Philosophy at York University to talk a bit more about this. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, So that's the big question. And are we able to look at this research and uh, determine can animals think? Well, I think we have uh, very good evidence that animals can think. So they're capable of extremely sophisticated behavior. But the puzzling thing is that whenever we try to precisely say exactly what it is that they're thinking, our words always seem to come up short. That makes sense. And I would imagine it depends on the animal as well. If we're talking about, uh, say, uh, a chimp as opposed to a chihuahua, there would be a difference there, wouldn't there? Oh, that's right. Yeah. So I wouldn't want to say that all animals are the same, though I do think there's a, a, a general puzzle that, uh, that, that occurs across all of our attempts to say what animals are thinking. And it's just this puzzle that we seem, you know, every time we try to use words, we have this problem of saying exactly what they think. And so um, this is familiar from scientists who study animals, including chimpanzees, but it should also be familiar to pet owners. So maybe your dog runs outside and starts to bury a bone and you might say, oh, the dog wanted to go outside because he wanted to bury his bone. But we use the word bone. Is it really a bone that the dog thinks of the object as, right? So for us, a bone is part of the remains of a corpse. And does the dog really understand that the bone comes from something that was once alive, that it's part of a a body part? Uh, So it seems like the words we use to describe what the dog is doing don't match um, exactly the way the dog conceptualizes it. 
Right. And that's interesting that you mentioned that because I used to have a, a different dog. Well, I have my dog, my, another dog of mine passed away, but th- they were very different. You could give them each a bone. The one yeah. lab would eat it immediately as though it was the last bone on earth. The other lab cross would take it and hide it or bury right. it or, or put it aside. And we used to laugh about it and say, oh, he, he's burying his treasure. Uh, but two very different responses from two dogs. Oh, that's right. So uh, there's uh, no doubt that animals are not all alike. They have, um, I mean, it's sort of a weird word to use, but in a sense, they have personalities, right? So mm-hmm. there, uh, um, you know, there are a lot of individual differences, uh, uh, for sure. Anyone who's, who's owned pets can see that. Um, and, uh, uh, but at the same time, that, that, those individual differences um, uh, are going to be, uh, in some ways, swamped by the differences between their own ways of cognizing the world and uh, the linguistic words we have when we try to describe them. So they, we still are not going to be able to say exactly what it is they think. And so this raises this question, why is that? Why is it that we have such a hard time saying what it is that animals think? And uh, what I've proposed and what I think is happening is that the structure of their thought is just too different from the structure of human language for precise translation to be possible. And there's really two ways of, uh, of seeing this, a more abstract way and a more concrete way. And uh, I can start with the more concrete way. Sure. So, so uh, I'll ask you a question, right, which is, what is the correct translation of the Mona Lisa? And I think it's pretty obvious that there is no good way to precisely translate the Mona Lisa into language, right? So you might try to say, oh, well, it's a picture of a woman and she's uh, smiling. But the problem is there are so many different ways to smile, and we don't seem to have the words to capture the exact way that she's smiling. On the other hand, you might say, okay, so we need more detail. Maybe we should just break the painting down into a bunch of colored pixels, and then we can create a micro description. We can say, oh, there's red at location one, blue at location two, and so on. But the problem is that approach confuses instructions for reproducing the painting with a translation of the painting, right? So by analogy, I could provide instructions for reproducing uh, the content of the front page of today's New York Times. So first press the T key, then the H key, then the E key. And then when you're done doing all that, you'll have a bunch of uh, sentences that reproduce what's written on the front page of the gray lady. But that's, uh, that's going to be about what buttons should be pressed and not about income inequality or Trump's latest tweets or whatever is on the front page of today's New York Times. Uh, So likewise, the Mona Lisa depicts a smiling woman, not a collection of colored pixels. So it seems the micro description doesn't yield uh, a translation. So the the general problem here is that uh, trying to characterize animal thought is like trying to describe the Mona Lisa. Approximations are possible, but precision is not. And the reason is that when you try to translate from something that has one structure, like the structure of a picture, into something that has a totally different structure, human language, uh, it's, it's too difficult to make a precise translation. And also, they can't tell us. We, we, we have to go based on our research, don't we? It's not like a dog or a chimp or anything can tell us how they are thinking. Well, that's right. Uh, so they can't tell us. And uh, so a natural first thought is that the problem is just one of communication. They can't tell us. But um, I actually don't think that's the deepest reason why um, why we can't understand what they're thinking. So there have been attempts to teach animals language. And you can get animals to, to learn. So you can uh, teach chimpanzees, for example, to use uh, 
tokens to communicate. And so one token, the researchers use to represent apples. But the problem is then you just transform the problem from how do we know what they're thinking to how do we know that they're using these tokens to mean the same thing as what we mean by them. So the problem just moves from thought to language, right? So just because they're using uh, the same words as us doesn't mean that they mean the same thing by those words. And so that's, so I think the problem actually goes, goes deeper than just their inability to, to speak. So is it the difference then, and I'm thinking of, say, a border collie, which I think is the smartest yeah. dog that you can teach the, mo- the most uh, items of, of words that, that match with actual items. But that doesn't mean the border collie is thinking. When you say get the doll, it's not the border collie thinking, okay, master has said I must get the doll, so I will go over here and get this <laughs> right. doll. He's not having this conversation in his head, yeah. but the dog knows enough to get the doll. That's right. So, uh, so, so it's not that the dog, so the dog is definitely thinking something and it's definitely thinking, um, you know, and what it's thinking is, you know, bears some resemblance to what we're thinking, just like the Mona Lisa bears some resemblance to the content of the sentence. There is a smiling woman. Um, you know, they're similar, but it's not thinking the doll in the way that we think the doll. So it's not, it's not a precise translation. It's only an approximate one. But it's good enough that if you just want the doll, then you can tell it and it'll get it for you. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think we, do we put too much in that we, we think uh, too much that, or, or give animals too much credit that they are thinking or thinkers like we are? Um, I don't know. You know, I think it depends. Some people don't give them enough credit. And, mm-hmm. uh, right, so some people, there's a, there's a long tradition in psychology, uh, a purely associationist tradition, that uh, really discounts what animals are capable of. So Descartes said uh, that, um, you know, look, it's so easy to speak that if animals uh, could think, surely they would just speak. <laughs> right. and, and I think, right, so, so there's this tradition of being very skeptical of animal thought. And I think that's, that's too severe. I think there's definitely something going on. They're capable of representing the world. They're capable of a form of reasoning over those representations. Uh, but I think, on the other hand, it, is, it would be too much to think that just because they're doing it, they're doing it in the same way that we're doing it. So there's kind of two mistakes you can make. You can make the mistake of thinking they don't think at all. That's kind of Descartes' mistake. Or you could make the mistake of thinking, oh, they're just like us. It's just they don't have vocal cords, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, uh, and that would also be a mistake. Uh, and are they not also driven by, and I know we keep focusing on dogs, but they, are they not also, they're driven by food, by survival, by loyalty to the creature, which happens to be the human in this case that gives that to them. It's not that they're thinking about that, that but they're driven to, that's the, how they survive. No, that's right. Yeah. So, you know, every animal has evolved uh, in a particular niche and, uh, and their, their, their motivations are going to be guided by that. And uh, no doubt, uh, animals are very uh, food-driven. Um, so are my three-year-olds, by the way. Uh, <laughs> but um, they're, uh, you know, so they're they're very uh, they're very driven by food, and that's um, and that that actually allows us to uh, to, to train them and to uh, and to to communicate with them uh, because we understand certain things that they want, um, even if we can't precisely specify exactly what it is that they want in our in our language. 
All right. Well, it's fascinating research, and I think anybody that spends any time with animals uh, is interested in this for sure. We will leave it there, though, but thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. Appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. Before the break, I mentioned we are going to talk about the human rights tribunals, both here in BC and in Ontario as well, because Howard Levitt is a senior partner at Levitt LLP, an employment and labor lawyer, and has talked about this and has written about some of the complaints that we've been seeing at the tribunals. I have done multiple human rights complaints and I have more pending as well. The refusal of gender-affirming care is the real thing and it affects everyone. People are free to identify with any gender that they that they wish. You know, we, we live in this is 2019. There's so many different genders. There's people that are non-binary and no one should be subject, subjected to the level of harassment and a level of discrimination that's happening out there. So that was Jessica Yanov speaking outside of the Human Rights Tribunal in Vancouver as her case wrapped up. And she is taking to a task, taking to the tribunal, uh, 16 estheticians and saying that she wanted waxing services for her male genitalia and they denied that service. And that's just one of the cases that Howard Levitt has mentioned in the piece he has written. So let's bring Howard in now to talk a little bit more about this. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Good morning. Uh, what are your thoughts, or maybe walk us through a bit uh, about uh, how you've written about this, that case, uh, a few other cases uh, that you say uh, kind of make a laughing stock of the human rights uh, tribunals? Well, I think the human rights tribunals make a laughing stock of themselves, and these cases are just illustrative of that. There was another case, other than the Yanov case, which I presume your listeners know about already, from Alberta recently, where a man post a Kijiji ad for a babysitter. Someone replied, he said, well, can I tell you about yourself? Well, I'm a 28-year-old male. The man's plans change. He doesn't use a babysitter, so he just doesn't bother responding. He then faces a human rights complaint for discriminating on age and gender for who he wants at home with his vulnerable little child. And, and this person had done made a complaint like that before, and initially the investigator had led me to fine against $1,500 for that discrimination. Now, ultimately, they appealed expensively, and a higher courts threw it aside, but it's a real risk. And I, I would imagine people are shaking their heads when hearing that, because it's not as though, and even if he had chosen a different babysitter, you would think you have every right to choose whatever babysitter you want for your child, and that's not discrimination, that's personal choice. Well, that's what the point. They to characterize your personal choice as discriminatory if you select someone other than a prohibited ground person, whether it's transgender or, in a babysitter's case, in his case, a male who is older. It's really outrageous if parents can't, for cultural reasons, ethnic reasons, safety reasons, pick who they want to be at home with their vulnerable children. Uh, do you think part of the reason is that anybody can file anything with the tribunal? There's no penalty for being frivolous? Well, that's certainly part of the issue. And in fact, some people have filed some just ridiculous and inherently frivolous and intended to be frivolous complaints in Ontario against, um, I think it was McDonald's for... I, I can't remember what the details about what, what, now, but it was something ridiculous. Uh, oh, I know what one of them was against um, 
one of the burger chains, A&W, for having a Papa Burger, (laughs) saying that made him feel violated, or against um, the city of Ottawa because of a mail on their traffic sign showing stop. (laughs) And, And ultimately, they were thrown out because the persons filing the complaint said this is intended to show just how outrageous it is because our complaints are as valid as any of the others uh, pursuant to the code itself so yes people file frivolous complaints there's no consequence to it and the reality is this further if you in ontario for example you take a case and case you're filed you have a totally frivolous case filed against you like yannick's case they don't dismiss it as peremptor- peremptorily as frivolous. And you're not one of the ones who decide to pay Yanif off to shake, to be shaken down and have her drop the case. Because gather a number of these people paid her a couple thousand dollars. She's dropped the case and moved on to others. Mm-hmm. Mission accomplished. So you then have to face this case in the public eye about your littlest private establishment and hire a lawyer. And if at the end of the day you win... After many, many days of hearings, you may have a sixty, seventy, eighty, hundred thousand dollar legal bill, but you can't get costs. And therefore, it's unrecoverable. It's all for nothing. Whereas the complainant can get full free they can't get costs either, but they can get full free legal representation. Supplied by the Human Rights Support Center in Ontario and a certain advocacy group in BC will do the same. So right away there's an inherent disadvantage. So I say, let's remove this from the set of social justice warriors that make up the Human Rights Tribunal chairs, because I did a study and found that the majority of both BC and Ontario are former left-wing advocates. Remove it from them. They're there with an ideological agenda, and try as they might, it can't not but seep in, and give it to the courts, where there's cost consequences if you're wrong. Right. So then if it's tossed out or if you're found to be to be in the wrong, not only are you found that way, you have to cover the costs of the people you've brought to court. Correct. And that's a real disincentive. So do you think it would clog up the courts, though, or would it be enough of a disincentive that we wouldn't see people bringing these cases forward? Well, if worse comes to worse, we have to appoint a few more judges. We're ultimately paying Human Rights Tribunal chairs a decent salary to begin with, so I, I wouldn't mind hiring a few more judges to make up for that if that's what the cost is. But no, I think when I, I see it in my own practice, when it costs nothing to lose, you take revenge in your former employer. If it, they don't bring lawyers, they just do it themselves. If it costs something to lose, well then, far few complaints are going to be brought. Does it point that maybe the Human Rights Tribunal, there needs to be more scrutiny on who becomes part of the panels? In that, be- Judges also would have specific backgrounds, and, and not to say that they, those would bias their, their judgments, but does it show that we need to perhaps better scrutinize who becomes part of a tribunal? Well, there are entirely political appointments from the provincial governments rather than the federal government. The federal government's had a history of care in who they appoint, but I, I, certainly there should be more scrutiny, and people should know who's being appointed. It should be announced. You should be able to review their background, and there should be some sort of inquiry that's transparent to the public. But at the end of the day, I think it's not merely who they are. Oh, that's a real problem, because when my client appears before someone to decide 
employment case and that person spent their life fighting against employers, you might feel a little bit uncomfortable at your prospects, whereas judges have a more rigorous procedure in their appointment. So, but sure, transparency would help, but my sense is uh, they're generally political appointments. They're, it, it's going to be tough to balance it in the existing system as opposed to simply making them judges, determining the cases, and and having cost consequences. All but right. sure, as a halfway step, they could certainly have some sort of appointment process where their background is visible, and so there has to be accountability by the provincial governments for who they appoint. All right. Uh, Howard, we'll have to leave it there. Sorry, we're right out of time. Howard Levitt, senior partner of Levitt LLP. You can read uh, his piece in the province.